Okay, so today is March the 11th. Uh, welcome to the Think Education podcast. We're delighted today to have, well, I was going to say two special guests, but Judith is now a complete regular. So um, we have uh, Judith and, and, a, and a special, special guest, um, which I'll, I'll turn to Judith to, to introduce. But uh, just to say, um, we're going to have a, an in-depth conversation today about, I suppose, all things T&E, which could be... Well, it could be a week-long conversation or it could be a very, very short conversation and uh, we'll see how it goes. So over to you, Judith. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Chris, and great to, great to see you. As you, as you say, um, I, wa- I was a guest on this uh, podcast a couple of times and now I've just uh, taken over it along with uh, Chris, so he's never, he's never getting it back. <laughs> I'm really delighted uh, today that we can welcome uh, Vivian Stern, who's the director of uh, Universities UK International, uh, and and I and I hope I can say a good friend of mine, as well as a colleague from from across uh, the sector. I'm really hoping she won't say that that isn't the case, because otherwise this could be a very short podcast. <laughs> we'll edit that uh, bit out. It's no, okay. We'll, we'll edit it out. It's fine. We'll edit that bit out. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we'll just we'll just we'll just put somebody else's voice in there. Nobody, nobody will know. No, nobody else knows Vivian. At all, obviously. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass over maybe to, to Vivian just to say a couple of words about herself uh, in a moment. But I'd like just to embarrass her a little bit more further. Uh, you know, I think Vivian and her her team have just been instrumental not only in, in helping and guiding the sector over the last couple of challenging years through through COVID and Brexit and all of the other things that have been foisted uh, um, upon us, but for a number of years before that, you know, and I, I think works not only hand in hand with universities, but many key agencies and of course governments, not only in our own, not only in the UK, but, uh, but, but beyond. So it's really wonderful to have Vivian here today to, to, to just chat with us. Um, about thoughts around international higher education and transnational education and where we might might see it all going. But over to you, maybe just for a, a few words from yourself, Vivian, by way of by way of your own introduction. Well, thanks, Judith, and I'm happy. I am happy to own you as a as a friend. I mean, we've gone back. We go back a, a very long way, and I think when I first started in this job, which was I think nearly eight years ago, um, you were one of the people that I sort of you know I I, I really. Uh, turned to when I needed a crash course in what 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 was this all about? You know, with internationalisation business. So uh, it's great to it's great to be with you, and um, thanks for having me. Thanks very much. So I'm going to pass back to Chris um, in in a moment. But uh, as you as you you might know, um, Vivian, uh, Chris, Chris and I, when um, again also have known each other for probably longer than we care to admit and and for a number of years have been saying we should write a book together and we stopped and started and stopped and started a number of times and then when when covid hit we actually we actually did it you know together with a, another friend and colleague of ours uh, tim gore and 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 I'd, I'd say we started, you know, with a clear idea about what we were going to do, and there was real, there was lots of plans, and there were. But I wouldn't entirely say that was accurate. Uh, and and so just to, just as in, just as the word evolution is in the in the, the title of the book, so so in a sense, uh, did that occur when we were bringing it? 
together, you know. So COVID had hit and we thought this is an interesting time to just be talking about where we think international higher education, you know, might be going, uh, not only after, uh, you know, obviously the period that we've had in terms of a global health pandemic, but all of the other things that were happening and had happened just after, just after that period of time, you know. Um, and so we, you know, we just started to, to reflect on what the landscape might look like in our different countries. Obviously, I was then and still am, you know, based in the the UK. Actually, Chris is in Dubai and, and, and Tim was in France. So it was also interesting to see the ways in which, you know, we were, we were looking at this through the lens of different countries as well as sort of different types of, of experiences. Um, and so it would it would just be really interesting, I think, for us just to explore with you some of the thoughts that that we had when we started to 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 bring the 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 book together. Um, Chris, maybe over to you to to get that ball rolling. Then in terms, let's let's think of some really difficult questions to ask Vivian. Okay. Um, I, in fact, I, while you're thinking of it, I'm going to go really, really hard. No, we won't do that. So she'll only be able to answer them, and then it would just make her look even more wonderful. Than if, I can, if I can't answer them, Judith, I'll blether. I'm very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd say it's a company you keep, Vivian, but you know that might not go down so well. Over to you again, Chris. Then. Sure. Thank you. And no, we absolutely did not have a clear idea of where we were going. Um, and I think that's probably a, a useful parallel for some T&E thinking. I, I was wondering maybe just to, to start, Vivian, if, and again, this is a very open, obviously, question, but a lot of, a lot of what we talked about in, in the book, and indeed we've talked about Judith and I for, for now over, I guess, two years, is um, what, I suppose, internationalization will look like. You know, um, we talked a lot about partnership. We've talked you know, a lot about the sort of national, regional, global, and, and where you know, universities will position themselves or, or already you know, positioning themselves and, and obviously mobility took a massive hit um, and that sort of new pathways of, of connection emerged. And so I was just interested to what your, you know, your reflection on where you think we might be going um, as a very sort of broad way to start, um, whether it's in partnership, whether it's in student mobility, whether it's in, you know, what we'll, what we'll be looking at. And obviously I'm using the word we in a completely general, nonsensical sense, right? It's it's just the international community. So, just curious, what your your reflections are on where you think we might be, what might be heading, or maybe where we are? Because heading, I guess, is maybe a very difficult question to to try to conceptualise. Well, I mean, I don't know. I think that um, I think there there are some things that you can see um, take shape in terms of sort of trends that that probably do allow us to give a little bit of a to to, to have some idea of things that are going to be more important post pandemic than um, than we might have imagined they were before the pandemic hit. I mean, I think that there were, there were some things that um, uh, you know it was already apparent that patterns of mobility were changing pre pandemic. Janet Lieber did a lovely piece of analysis for for us in UKI. Um, called Why Aren't We Second, looking at patterns in in mobility uh, by students studying for full degrees outside their home country. And it pointed to things like the rise of intra-regional mobility, you know, as opposed to inter-regional mobility. So more students studying relatively close to home in a, in a larger number of hubs 
um, you know, destinations um, that weren't previously attracting large numbers of international students positioning themselves to do so, more choice for students in how they study, so combining um, a full degree overseas uh, with perhaps um, studying locally for part of their degree. And I think that the UK is really well placed to be part of catering to that kind of shifting um, demand. But I think the other thing that really I was astonished by how resilient demand for overseas study was during the pandemic, particularly for the UK. And obviously, we benefited from the fact that we were one of the, the only major destinations that had really fully open borders um, uh, throughout the pandemic. And so we, we benefited from students who might otherwise have gone to Australia or Canada coming to the UK instead. Um, but, but, you know, right back at the beginning, about almost exactly two years ago, I remember sitting around in in UK thinking, we are going to see a total collapse of onshore recruitment, and that will drive some institutions into financial crisis. Mm. That's what we thought would happen. It didn't happen. Uh, Some institutions grew enrolments during the the pandemic, uh, first year of the pandemic. This year, January entry, I know lots of universities that have had two They've had to, you know, they've they've been managing demand in a way that nobody imagined they'd be doing. So it's extraordinary how resilient that appetite for overseas study has been. I think that's a really interesting um, point, Vivian, because uh, I I remember saying pretty much the same thing a couple of years ago, or slightly less than that, in a in a in a session that I was I was doing in a, in a webinar, and saying. That, there will definitely be universities that will close. Yeah. They won't be able to cope with the financial hit. Or there will definitely be universities that will merge with other universities because they'll have to to, to to survive. And and I was really convinced that that would happen, you know, just looking at the shape and the makeup of universities. And, and, I, and, and I'm really, I'm glad I was wrong, obviously. Mm-hmm. I'm very glad I was wrong from that point of view. But I suppose one thing it really... That, then it, it, it struck me was that therefore it wasn't only about the resilience of, of institutions, but a, about the students, yeah. about yeah. the students overseas who are coming either to us here. You know, I'm, I'm based in, in, in Wales and, and at Swansea University. And as you've just said, Vivian, I mean, our numbers have just gone through the roof when it comes to January entry and we're just talking about how we can manage that so that they have the best experience but it really has struck me that 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 resilience and uh, and still ambition of institutions uh, sorry of, of individuals of, of individual students undergraduate postgraduate from across the world to, to be to be mobile to really want to still continue to do what they want to to do and that's been very heartening at this this time hasn't it it has. I mean, I think, though, you know, there are some things like those those January starts. If you think about how many universities um, shifted to multiple entry points during the year because they wanted to be able to sort of hedge against the possibility that you couldn't travel in the autumn, but maybe you'd be able to travel in the new year. I think that's probably with us to stay as well, giving students more choice about when um, and how they study. I think that that's going to be one of the kind of lasting effects. But the other thing that I think it, I, it, it's funny how sometimes only with hindsight you realise that there are these fundamental tr- truths. And um, one of the fundamental truths is that people at um, uh, an early stage of their adult lives, they can't afford to put their education on ice. 
it, it isn't possible to postpone your the, that that phase of your education if, if you're determined to progress to higher education in order to start the career you, you know it and, and and that that i think is something that you know it's it, i saw it in young people in my own sort of circle you know my my friends 18 year old children who they didn't think about postponing going to university even though that they knew the experience wouldn't have been um would be you know frankly less less good than it would would be if you went in a non-pandemic period because nobody's willing to sit around in their bedroom for two years waiting for the life to start and actually that that's something that um you know i think reminds us that what we're doing is about enabling predominantly young people to make a really important step in their lives and you know as long as we're constantly attuning what we do to help them do that i think we're going to be uh, we're going to be attractive but do, do you on that note do you think though that um you know it has changed the shape of institutions hasn't it and we've had to to you know to, to to do some things be it online or others that that we haven't done before do you think therefore not only things like january entry and sort of entry points that are that, that expand the offer for, for students is there, but also other ways in which we might be delivering education? Do you think that there that therefore will be some changes that potentially have been accelerated yeah. that might have been going to happen anyway, but might have taken a bit longer, that might be though accelerated due to particularly to the global health pandemic? Absolutely. I mean, I think and distance and, uh, and, and, you know, distance and um, blended provision, I think, are going to be uh, increasingly important. You can see that in the TNE data. And we've still not seen the full effects of the kind of pandemic on uh, delivery. It's changed mindsets in regulatory authorities around the world about whether online education can be trusted. You know, some of that that quite deeply embedded um, prejudice against online education has been challenged by the pandemic because everybody's had a go at living their lives online and we're doing it now and it's completely fine. It's perfectly possible to study um, at a, a sort of high level um, interactively, you know, with your colleagues and with um, academic supervisors um, fully online. I've done it, right? I mean, not at an advanced level, but I've, I've been... Uh, I've been learning French and I've done MOOCs online, things I never would have considered um, doing before. And I think so it's, cha it's changed the mindset. And I think that's quite exciting in two, two ways. First of all, you know, I think the, the truth of it is that um, if, you, if you concentrate on only welcoming students to uh, the UK, you're only catering to a tiny proportion of very wealthy individuals. If we can expand access to um, UK higher education through, through um, blended and fully online uh, programmes, we'll be able to uh, reach a, a, a much wider audience. It's not that it's cheaper. It's not that um, that universities don't have to invest just as much in teaching an individual online as um, as they do face to face. But all of those additional costs that are associated with moving to another country and um, you know all of the things that go with that. I think that um, digital and blended provision will enable us to get to people we wouldn't um, otherwise. I think that's quite exciting. Um, I think the other thing is the uh, the opportunity opens up to collaboration between institutions. Um, so the fact that you can, I mean, I, I think, you know, my sort of second glass of wine hypothesis is that we'll enter a world in which you think about the delivery of education much more like universities think about research, where, you know, when you're coll collaborating in certain disciplines, it's sort of instinctive to think, OK, well, we're really good at this bit, but, you know, the University of X has 
this set of expertise or that guy there is really good at this particular technique or whatever it is and you'll and you'll become more sort of instinctively minded to think about bolting together what you are brilliant at with what people in your network are also great at to, to deliver um, content, to deliver teaching to students that is enriched by those sorts of partnerships. And I think that will happen. I mean, you start to hear people talking about that. That's really, that's really interesting. I'm going to pass back over to Chris in a second, but something you said earlier on, I just want to um, uh, reflect on or um, probe a little bit further. And you were talking a little bit about hubs and other areas where, you know, we might have, um, you know, joint delivery of programs. I mean, obviously we've got, we've got some very mature ones already, haven't we? Not least, of course, in the Middle East, but of course in Malaysia and other areas. Where do you think some of those, those new sort of educational hubs might uh, might start appearing? Uh, it's a really interesting question. And um, I think that um, there are a number of countries that are trying to position themselves to be that that sort of destination. So Greece, um, the Greek government is very, very keen to become a kind of destination of choice for um, international students. And UK universities are already very well positioned to, um, to be partners, particularly with the private college sector in that. Um, you know, Egypt was another place that saw itself as a, a destination for for Africa, um, uh, and and there, there was again, you know, extensive UK uh, higher education provision there. Um, I think it's 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 one of these um, interesting areas where there are lots of countries that are trying to position themselves to be a bit like Malaysia, and then at the same time, what's happening? I think watching what's going on in Malaysia is kind of interesting because I. I think there's, we, we, I don't know whether we've reached peak Malaysia, but certainly I'm interested in the experience of institutions who are uh, established in Malaysia and, and, how, and how they think that's going to evolve. And I don't want to pass comment on it, but I certainly think it's, it's, it's interesting to watch that. <laughs> yeah, Chris, that's, you spent some time in I did. Malaysia, I, spent, I spent nine years in Malaysia. Yeah. Um, and I have colleagues who, who are still there and, and people who have just recently left. And yeah, it's... Uh, I think we probably have reached peak. I think we might be in retreat. Um, uh, it's, and this is the issue, I think, often with, with the 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 and e hub model, that you've got that, you know, here a hub, there a hub, everywhere a hub, hub. And if every Southeast Asian nation, for example, wants to be a hub, then surely Southeast Asia itself is just the hub. It becomes, a, you know, a, almost a saturation of the of the market. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I obviously understand why that why it happens. It's just it's an interesting thing to, to see from now I'm outside it. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And terms. how does are you in? Are you in Dubai? I am. I am. Yeah. So how how does Dubai feel from the kind of that uh, hub perspective? Because that's the other hotspot, I guess. It is, um, uh, and I suppose more broadly the UAE itself. Um, I mean, because the, we have seven Emirates, and and all of them have have branch campuses of, of we 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 capture them a little bit differently, but we we have you know branch campuses okay. everywhere throughout. Um, and the the model here is very very different from the model in Malaysia. Um, the Malaysian model is is not about keeping students post graduation. It's not about um, here. It's much more about bringing people in to stay in or capturing the international school market. When you know we've got a massive international school market, and so rather than lose our eighteen year olds to go back to their home countries of France or Australia or England, we want them to stay you know stay here and work here. And so there's a, there's a different feel. Uh, to it um, uh, yeah and I mean we've 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 had massive growth and then it's obviously sort of leveled out a little bit in the last couple of years um, 
But we, I mean, I, I was very interested, you know, in the point you were making about, you know, obviously the, the accreditation model, because a lot of our agencies here very quickly um, issued uh, frameworks and guidelines on online learning and, you know, and, and handbooks for schools. And it became part of the accreditation and ranking system. You know, it was very quickly embedded in, you know, are you capable? Are you moving towards capable, uh, et cetera? And I, I find it very interesting because, you know, like many places around the world, 24 hours before the pandemic, online learning wasn't real. Like it, it wasn't a real yeah. thing. I mean, we have, a, we have an online university, but 60% of their, of their teaching was still face-to-face. So they were blended, but they were certainly, you know, moving in that direction. And then 24 hours after the pandemic hit, it's the same, it's the same money, it's the same experience. And not, that's obviously not true because it's not the same experience. But I did like, I very much liked your point about, and this is something Judith and I have talked about, uh, you know, this partnership through through online delivery. Um, and I'd, I'd sort of floated this idea about, you know, uh, an online T&E degree um, is sort of within a hub yeah. model where, you know, it could be under the governance of, in my case, it would be KHDA or, you know, MQA and, you know, in Malaysia, where, you know, they're sort of accrediting it, but the, all the different T&E providers are, are either giving a module or, you know, something, and it sort of becomes this yeah. badged, um, you know, T&E something. Um, and once we've now moved past the, the problem of accreditation and recognition, so that, that I think was the massive hurdle. Um, and I, I'm interested because, you know, you know, some of the stuff that American University have been doing, you know, you're offering programs, you know, in other people's facilities, but through purely online delivery. And I'm, I'm wondering, do, do you think we'll see any of that type of movement in Europe? Because we, we see a lot of it in a lot of it. We see it in, you know, in my part of the world, in Southeast Asia, particularly because those are the traditional pathway models anyway for T&E, right? So we've, we've already got that sort of established. What's your sense of what might happen in, in the European space? Obviously, and again, that's a very broad uh, area, but do you, do you get any sense of we might see European collaboration, you know, including the UK, just within the EU? Do you have any sense of where that might go? Well, funnily enough, I mean, my head is full of um, Ukraine at the moment, as, as perhaps uh, a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, in common with perhaps a lot of people. And one of the things that we've been talking a lot about this week is, you know, how do you, what is it, what role might universities in the UK play in sustaining Ukrainian universities through this, um, this mm. crisis? We've got a meeting with a group of Ukrainian universities on Tuesday morning. But the, the, the sort of idea that seems to be developing is, is there a way the UK universities could help Ukrainian universities to continue to teach their students, right? They won't necessarily be in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They may be in Poland or Latvia. But is there a way through partnerships, since universities in the UK have this expertise in in transnational education and, and online delivery, is there a way that we can help to sustain Ukrainian university provision through that sort of partnership? Now, that might sound at the moment like a bit of an arm wavy, um, uh, idea and it is really but I think just sort of linking back to what you said during the pandemic one of the things that happened is that that UK universities use their partners as um you know effectively the drop-in centers or the kind of physical sites yeah. where their students studying their degrees fully online could go and use um physical resources or could gather together or could access a library or could you know, have some sort of face-to-face uh, sort of um, pastoral support. And I guess what, what, what is forming in my mind is the idea that um, you, you may have students studying Ukrainian degrees 
in Polish universities with some kind of um, underpinning uh, uh, pedagogical support being delivered by UK partners. I don't know whether that is going to happen, but I think it's something that it's interesting to explore. And it may be that just like the pandemic, these crises push people to do things that otherwise would seem ridiculous yeah. or far too difficult or yeah. completely, you know, why on earth would you do that? But then it opens up an idea that has legs beyond that outside the crisis. This may be much more collaborative model of um, of delivering higher education. I, I don't know. I mean, it may be that in, in six months time, we look back on that sort of idea and we think, well, that didn't happen. But I, I think it's worth talking about it at the very least. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I think one of the, yeah, I mean, the point you're making is is absolutely critical that, that things that happened during the pandemic, it's not that they wouldn't have happened, but they'd have taken us 20 years. I mean, universities yeah. would never have agreed to do, you know, we, we, and okay, we did, a, and a lot of what we did was wrong. Like it wasn't, it was flawed and it was imperfect. And, and yes, we were in a pandemic, so that's, you know, acceptable. But I think having broken through that and, and, as you say, you know, the necessity, uh, when you're talking about mobility, we had to do things differently, otherwise we would have closed down. And so once you've accepted that as a reality, then why not try it in another area? And I think, I think there will be universities that will try this because you can try things now and you can, you know, and, yeah. and a lot of it, you know, and particularly in the chapter that Judith um, wrote about about mergers, this a big big thing that came out of it, you know, certainly from my reading of it was it's this ego, right? It's this positioning of independence, of self reliance that you have to let go of and, and therefore the collaborative model can actually, you know, massively benefit um, you know, both access points but also I think and the the analogy you make about research, I think that's a very interesting one because we do that with universities. There's it's not that there's oh did you partner with another person? It's well why didn't you partner with more? Like there's, there's that, you know, our ranking yeah. for research is now you have to have multiple international partners. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting avenue to, to explore. Sorry, Judith, I think I, I think I cut you you off then. No, I, I think it just, as you, were, as you were talking, it did make me reflect that, you know, very often we would say, wouldn't we, with any of the things that we were trying to do, well, we can't do that. The regulations mm. don't let us do that. Or either our universities' regulations don't let us do it or the government's regulations, or, you know, computer says no anyway, that, yeah. that kind of response, wasn't it? And and I, and I think sort of ironically, the computer was absolutely saying yes now, wasn't it? Because the computer was sort of all that, all that we had. And, and it did make me think of those things that we always used to say with the development of partnerships or TNE, that, you know, you have to do this in order to be progressing it. So you have to do your site visits. And you have to do these things in this way. And we realise that you don't actually have to, do you? There are different ways of, of doing things that can still ensure that the quality is still there, that, that does mean that you've got, you've got a, a product for your students that is, that is, that is right and that is, that is useful. And so, so maybe it's helped us in some ways as well to, to, to reflect on those things that we absolutely do 100% need to do and those things where we can be sort of more flexible. Um, I suppose just, just finally coming back to the point, as Chris said, I did a, a chapter around um, mergers and particularly started writing it back in the day when I thought that universities would be closing and the only way that some of them could keep going would be to, to join up with 
others, but not just other universities or other like-minded individuals, if you see what I mean, but different types of mergers. So mergers with business, you know, mergers with different types of institutions, mergers with private institutions, lots of lots of different ways in which we might do it. And And even though that hasn't necessarily happened, although we have had new types of universities starting to emerge, as we know, um, I still think that might be one. It goes back to your point earlier on, Vivian, about about in a sense universities potentially on other sides of the globe buddying up and you know delivering things together from a teaching perspective as well as from a research perspective and i don't know whether you think that might be a a direction of travel as well that in in this time has given us an opportunity to reflect that that might have been something that could happen well yes universities do have excellent relationships with business and industry already you know is there an opportunity for that to go in a sense a step further because there are some things at present that you might be able to do in a commercial setting that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do in a university setting certainly if you've got charity charitable status yeah and i think i mean there's something about um you know just removing removing the necessity to physically travel from one place to another you might still decide that's the best way to do something but but um you know you talk about for example collaboration with business and and i think that it's obviously a cost to a business to to give somebody's time to take part in delivering a, an element of um a program and it, the, the more you can reduce how much it costs that business to contribute to your curriculum the better surely and um, so I, I mean, it's not an area that I'm particularly um, well informed about. So I might be talking out of my hat, but it seems to me that it will apply in those sorts of relationships just as it does in the international relationships. Now, that's not to say that we won't go back to um, much more face-to-face engagement than we're doing even now. Um, I think a lot of us are beginning to appreciate what we lose when we don't see each other face-to-face. I... I'm really conscious. I tell this story about research all the time, but it's really striking me now how much um, it applies to me in my own professional life. Um, my phone's going off. Should I turn it off or is that? No, no, that's just life. <laughs> Maybe we'll that's just it. life. That's fine. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, um, but so, you know, the, the idea that um, in research, we've always said, you know what, you need to find ways to let academics hang out with each other you know to, to sort of sit together in a bar until two o'clock in the morning because that's when something will spark and they'll they'll hit upon an idea then they might go away and work it up and it might become a grant application and eventually it'll become a project and eventually it'll become a, a paper and then perhaps you know some sort of huge change in the way something is done but that interaction that isn't formal and planned that is the product of just hanging out together that's going to we're going to miss that we already we really missed that i think the opportunity to have a really unstructured conversation about something and then for that to spark an idea or a friendship that then leads you to do things and and i think that that's probably what will happen to us over the course of the next um, couple of years we'll 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 make decisions about what we need to do in order to be inspired frankly And and that will apply in education too, I think there will be, when I think um, about my time at university, and I know one shouldn't rely on personal anecdote, but so much of the the thinking I did was with my 
sort of fellow students over a bottle of wine. It wasn't sitting in a tutorial or in the library. It was when you went and started talking about those ideas. So I think we will need to put some of that back in. And um, it doesn't mean that fully online isn't a possible mechanism, but I don't think it's going to be... I don't think we'll see the kind of avalanche that... Michael Barber talked about where the, the, the sort of old model is swept away because I think people will still need the opportunity to interact with each other as human beings, you know, preferably with alcohol in their bloodstream. There's a theme emerging here, Vivian. There is. Yes, and a second we're going to ask you whether it's red or white, and it, I suppose it might just depend on the time of day. Um, it's interesting, the, the, the last point you make, though, isn't it? Because it's a little bit like here in, in the UK, and sadly I'm sort of old enough to remember this, when, you know, with the, the, the Open University really started and people were watching you know, programs on the television about tiling and plumbing and all these different things at three in the morning because nobody had VCRs and and, mm. and anybody under a certain age, a certain age now is is going away desperately like googling what VCR means. But you know, we were we were we were thinking, well, well, that's it then. There's going to and computers are here, and there'll be no need for people in classrooms. There'll be no need for teachers and. and this is going to, and, and, and that hasn't happened, of course, has it? But it has changed and shaped the way in which we interact, hasn't it? And one thing I was just thinking as, I, as I'm sitting here in my home, you know, and you might be in similar places as well. Um, and whereas on, on the one hand, I think for some people being at home and doing the things that we're doing and interacting on Zoom or Teams or Collaborate or whatever it is, uh, you know, at this particular point in time has been a challenge for some people because it sort of invades your home a bit. Um, in some ways, it's made people more relaxed, hasn't it? And in a way, it's almost like, oh, are we going to get to the stage where I guess, I guess probably young people are already there. I see them walking around the streets with their phones, chatting to their friends yeah. and they're probably then going home and having a glass of wine and doing that as well. So maybe we're just catching up with, with what other people are already doing. But it's almost like we've that social space around it because we're also doing it at home where potentially you might be more relaxed as well. Yeah. You know, um, whether we'll still keep, keep some of that. And as you say, those 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 water cooler moments anyway if if it's not of, of an evening um as you say that where you can spark those as areas of debate that potentially will have will have the zoom on in the corner a little bit like you have your television on in the corner mm. and you're not really watching it you know you're almost will just have that anyway and, yeah. and whether there'll be that side of it as, but that's never going to negate the need is it for for face-to-face interactions or the or the desire to do that i guess though mm. the good thing is that you can do this kind of thing with people when they're in different places which mm. you probably couldn't normally you know obviously if um if you're you're totally reliant on doing things face to face yeah and i think you, the thing you you say about sort of informality has been really interesting i've got to every six weeks i meet with our colleagues in and the US, Canada, Australia, Germany, and New Zealand all together, and it's usually at ridiculous o'clock, and partly because, you know, it's six o'clock in the morning in New Zealand and 10 o'clock at night in Germany, and that brings a certain informality to it, because as you say, you're sort of in the middle of your actual life, and and that we were, we were actually talking about the next phase of this. We've been doing it now for two years, and we were talking about how we wanted to sort of do this going forward, and 
all of us agreed we wanted to keep that informality you know an element of just let's see what comes up and then talk about that and and I so I think it's possible but I think you have to sort of train yourself to create a structure which allows for that and it means letting go a little bit I mean it also Judith you know you as a woman who likes a good pair of shoes it asks it makes you ask questions in your first am I now the kind of woman who will wander into the office wearing jeans and trainers maybe I am I don't know I mean that's a kind of radical thought but then it changes the way you interact with colleagues, I think. Yeah. Yes, well, as, as, as you say, the, the, the sad passing of my shoe collection uh, has, I think, been, been something that, uh, that will shock many a people. If there are people that know me that are, that are watching this, I think, I think I'd, um, I'd credit a couple of things with that. One is COVID and the fact that I spend all my time now, as you say, if I'm at home sitting wearing jeans and, and fluffy slippers. And, and the other is been in lovely Swansea where um, I'm often, you know, walking up and down, you know, in order to, 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 to go to the Singleton campus or I'm going to the Bay campus and I've always got my sneakers on. Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I would walk by some people, Vivian, and quite frankly, they wouldn't even think it's me. With my beanie <laughs> and my, 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 my sneakers on and they'll go, there's a, there's a woman there that looks remarkably like Judith Lammy, but it simply can't be because yeah. she's there you go, Christopher. This is what happens. We start talking about TNE, we end up about shoes. It's just yeah, I, sad, I, but there we go. Uh, Judith and I have talked about this. I think I have more shoes than she does. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm well in this yeah. conversation too. Uh, I was wondering, because I, I know we've got to sort of bring this to an end because you've obviously both of you got very busy days. I actually think that the last point that was made very neatly ties into to the first one, uh, Vivian, that we are talking about in terms of entry points that actually our focus needs to be on the, the needs of the learner. So the space in which that, that takes place. So if we change the entry points, we change the access points, we change the delivery model, we need to think about, you know, I think if we went back to fully face-to-face and eliminated all online, we've essentially learned nothing from the last two years. There are, as you say, yeah. there are subjects certain ages of students, younger students, it's much harder, but postgraduate students particularly, I mean, I, I teach a class to PhD students in different Emirates. It's just as easy to do it online as making them drive three hours and back a day um, yeah. to sit in a room. And I think there are informal meetings. There are things that we could do, you know, responsibly online. And there are things that we need to do responsibly face to face. And I think it, it doesn't need to be binary. I mean, as Judith was saying, there are some people find it very comfortable. There are a lot of people that didn't learn from face to face. It wasn't a perfect system. You know, just putting somebody physically doesn't mean they're engaging. And as you know, you said before, yeah. with the, the interregional mobility, they've, they've left family, they've left parents, they may have left children, they're in another country, they don't, you know, there's an enormous plus to that, but there's an also, there's a big burden and a hardship. And, and so where we can develop that sense of community, you know, I think, I think if we, hopefully in education, we'll shift to what's a more responsive model and that will be, yeah. it won't be one thing, right? It'll be many things with hopefully many partners at many places, uh, but I think if we go backwards, it will be, you know, I understand that the want, oh, we want the normal, we want the tradition. It's like, well, yes, because human, we want the sense of security, but it wasn't a perfect system. So let's, let's try and not build a perfect system, but let's try and move in at least in the right direction, hopefully. Yeah. No, so I was just, I was just struck yeah. by the sort of bookends of your points. They, they sort of nicely capture that approach, I think. And I guess what just the, struck me there with what you were saying, um, Chris, and I guess again why we've got the word evolution in the book title is you can't actually go backwards. There's not 
that that isn't an option. You know, the the, the option is only to, to to go forward in different sorts of ways, isn't it? I suppose though, what what is I've just realised, I suppose, or, or or thought, not only for institutions but for individuals, for people that that you know, there are, there are more things that are possible now than you might have imagined before. You know, whereas before we might have said, oh, no, we can't do that. That's impossible. It's a lot of people use the word impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. Okay, it might be difficult. It might be complex. It might go against some rules at the moment. But actually, you know, the, the art of the possible is is there. And I and I suppose if there's that that we can carry on taking as we go forward, then that will at least be one benefit of what's been, for some, a very challenging situation but for others, potentially quite a liberating one. Yeah. Mm. Excellent. Well, so I think we're going to have to thank absolutely Vivian for those little little insights into her personality. There, we know what she gets up to of an evening. She'll be, and we're, and we're just there sitting here wondering if she's wearing her jeans and fluffy slippers now. I'm really not. I've got, I've, got quite a, I've got a formal meeting in about um, an hour and a half, so I actually, I'm, I'm fully booted and seated. I was going to say, you're looking, you're looking very dapper there, so I'm sure you're not. <laughs> but thank you, thank you very much for, for sharing your thoughts and, and ideas with us. And, and again, actually, isn't this uh, a wonderful platform that we can do that, that we can yep. sit in our respective places, ready to off, go off and do what we're going to do, Chris, to enjoy his 40 degrees outside, me to mm. get rained on somewhere, uh, and, and, and Vivian to, to be potentially pounding the streets of London, going off for a, uh, an important meeting somewhere. Thank you. Thank you so much, though. It's been great to hear your, hear your reflections, uh, and we hope to see you in person very soon. Great. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you.